0: Welcome to 49. My name is Judd Devermont. I'm the director of the AFRICA program at the Center for Strategic and International Studies. I was the National Intelligence Officer for Africa and worked at the National Security Council.
1: And I'm Nicole Willette. I'm Chief of Staff at the Open Society Foundation and like Judd, I've served at the National Security Council as well as the U.S. State Department and Senate Foreign Relations.
0: This podcast has everything you need to know about U.S. policy towards sub-Saharan Africa. What happened in the past? What should the Biden administration do? Plus, we promise to deliver the goods in 15 minutes or less, one country at a time.
1: This episode is about Liberia, and we are joined by Jude Moore, a senior policy fellow at the Center for Global Development. He previously served as Liberia's Minister of
0: Public Works. Nicole, do you want to walk us through some of the highlights of U.S. policy towards Liberia?
1: I'll give it a try. The United States and Liberia's relationship dates back nearly two centuries. In 1819, the U.S. Congress appropriated $100,000 for the establishment of Liberia and resettlement of free men and freed slaves. The first group of settlers arrived in Liberia from the United States in the 1820s. The United States officially recognized Liberia in 1862 and established an American legation, which I had to look up, in 1864. It was upgraded to an embassy in 1949. The first U.S. ambassador to Liberia later said the country was the State Department's jewel in all of Africa. The United States had economic interests, including the Firestone Rubber Plantation and iron ore deposits. The Eisenhower administration viewed Liberia as a key partner in Africa. The two countries signed a mutual defense agreement in 1959. There was a large VOA transmitter and a classified communication station. The U.S. Coast Guard had an Omega station, which served as a navigational guide for ships. Liberia was very much tied to the West during the Cold War. When President Tubman, who had been in power for 27 years, died in 1971, his Vice President William Tolbert took over. Most U.S. diplomats had a positive view of the new president, saying he was trying to do good. The CIA assessed that Tolbert had, quote, presided over a quiet revolution that has featured a gradual increase in the pace of social and political change. Presidents Ford and Carter invited Tolbert to the White House, and President Carter visited Liberia in 1978. And this was actually the second visit by a U.S. president. FDR traveled there in 1943. Liberians, however, wanted more. They often pointed to what the French were doing for their former colonies as a comparison. Meanwhile, corruption was worsening, and in April 1979, there were riots over the price of rice. Even though the government was shaken by the unrest, it moved ahead with a very opulent Organization of African Unity conference with presidential cabanas and a cruise ship as a floating hotel. The next year, Master Sergeant Samuel Doe overthrew the government, killing Tolbert and executing 13 members of the cabinet. Nonetheless, the United States remained a close partner of Liberia. Indeed, it increased its military and financial assistance by ninefold by 1982. When Doe wanted to have a celebration marking the first anniversary of his coup, the United States sent a cruiser and Green Berets. President Reagan met with Doe at the White House, infamously calling him Chairman Mo. The US government viewed Doe as an ally during the Cold War and argued, and we can debate how genuinely, that he was important for Liberian stability. Of course, Doe was steering the country towards ruin. The economy was mismanaged. There were counter coups and attacks on rival ethnic groups, all of which set the stage for Charles Taylor's invasion in 1989 and the start of the Civil War. The United States was involved through the conflict, first undertaking a massive evacuation of U.S. and third-country nationals. It provided assistance to IDPs and refugees, assisted with the training of regional forces, and supported the various interim governments. There were missteps, too. U.S. readiness to deploy U.S. military attachés with Doe's army units to discourage human rights abuses was widely panned as an attempt to help Doe stay in power. Before Monrovia fell, Assistant Secretary of State Hank Cohen offered to evacuate Doe and his family. There were disagreements about what he could take with him, and higher-ups in the U.S. government had their doubts about the effort. Doe was later tortured and killed by rebel leader Prince Johnson, who is now a senator. Charles Taylor ended up winning elections in 1997, and U.S. relations remained contentious at best. There were constant demarches about human rights abuses, especially regarding Taylor's support for the Revolutionary United Front in Sierra Leone. The embassy went from one of the biggest in the world under Doe to a skeleton crew during Taylor's time. Most of the critical communication infrastructure was dismantled and removed by U.S. teams during the fighting. Charles Taylor soon faced new rebel groups, the Lurd, backed by Guinea, and Model backed by Cote d'Ivoire, and he was indicted by the Special Court of Sierra Leone for war crimes in 2003. With Monrovia under siege by rebel forces, Taylor fled to Nigeria and a transitional process began. Again, the United States supported the return to civilian democratic rule, which resulted in the election of Alan Johnson Sirleaf in 2006. The new president worked closely with international partners to put the country back together after two decades of war. The United States, working through contractors, helped rebuild the Liberian Army. Sirleaf supported Governance and Economic Management Assistance Program, GMAP, which had been signed by the transitional government to improve budget expenditures and procurement. She was welcomed to the White House by Presidents Bush and Obama, and Bush visited Liberia. By the way, our ambassador to Liberia during much of this period was Linda Thomas-Greenfield, who is now Biden's ambassador to the UN and known primarily by the acronym LTG. Notably, the United States led the response to the Ebola crisis in Liberia, deploying troops to assist Liberia to deal with this devastating disease. In 2018, Sirleaf stepped down and opposition leader and renowned football star George Way became president. It was the first democratic transition through the ballot box since 1944. Judd, do you want to talk about a major U.S. success or policy failure in Liberia?
0: Previous administrations, presumably the Biden administration, will think a lot about voting coincidence at the UN, right? Who is voting with us versus our adversaries? No country in sub-Saharan Africa more consistently votes with the U.S. than Liberia. I think the last time I checked, it was at 50%, which most African countries are 30% or under. Also, Liberia is the only country that supported us in the efforts to oppose Madero and recognize Guaido in Venezuela. So I think that there's something maybe because of this history, maybe because of the engagement that we've had over time and the close relationships between our government that has consistently produced an alignment on international issues where that is often lacking. And maybe Judea can help us understand why, but I wanted to put that out there because it is so unique and singular about our relationship with Liberia. So that's a good transition, Jude. What should the Biden administration strategy towards Liberia
2: be? So I think I'm going to mix mine with a big idea, is that there is no country in Africa that has had a longer relationship with the United States than Liberia. We became independent in 1847. The next African country doesn't become independent until 1957, that's Ghana. And if you were the average African country and just looking at what country has the longest relationship with the United States, what difference has that relationship made? If you're Francophone, you're looking at what the French did in Abidjan, Dakar. If you're a British or Anglophone, you're looking at what the British did in Nigeria. And I don't know if Liberia is such a spanking example of the benefits of a long relationship with the United States. So if I were to buy the administration, I would make Liberia the example of what a country, the benefits of being a U.S. ally and, and sticking with the United States. And the place I would start, of course, is the health sector. I think uh, there's a model that says that there is a 47 to 57% chance that in the next 25 years, there will be a pandemic the size of the one we're facing now. And most of those, there's a Marburg outbreak now in Guinea, in the same region where we had Ebola. So I would focus on the health sector in Liberia. I think that's where I would go really, really big. And I would begin first with the John F. Kennedy Memorial Hospital. That was the country's only teaching hospital and a tertiary health institution in the country. I think the Japanese have done really well because in the same compound as the JFK Memorial Hospital is the Japanese Children's Hospital, Friendship Hospital. And it's much nicer, looks better than JFK. So I would focus on JFK And because next to JFK is the Totma Medical, the National Institute of Medical Arts, where you're training nurses, midwives, and physician assistants, if I were the Biden administration, most of my outreach to Liberia would significantly be focused on strengthening the health sector, not delivery, but in training the health workforce. Because I think, in terms of defining issues that's going to happen in the future of the continent and the region, outside of climate change, I think health. Okay, Nicole. In the interagency, how do we
0: get that sort of focus on Liberia?
1: Well, Jude just made this question a lot easier by pointing out the places where we obviously have inroads and really should be exploiting them. The UN Voting Alliance, certainly the health sector, particularly now that we have COVID, right? I mean, could there be a better opportunity for being able to highlight how important that is? And using the leadership that we have right now in the Biden administration to do that, right? I mean, if we're going to think about continuing the relationship at the UN and strengthening that and perhaps studying that, right? Like, that's, as you say, Judd, it's a pretty interesting question of how that has continued to be so close over time. You know, we've got Linda Thomas-Greenfield there. She knows Liberia well, and she certainly cares about it. And I think that conversation with her about the relationship is important, but also I think the relationship building to be able to do more in the health sector. I am deeply embarrassed that the JFK (laughs) Memorial Hospital is so subpar to Japan. It's also just not okay. And I think this is where USAID could come in big in the interagency and look at what more can be done. Samantha Power, just back from a trip to Sudan and Ethiopia, certainly is someone who knows the continent and who cares. And I think thinking with her team in global health about what really building out that training piece looks like, I love the framing that Juday did of this being an example for how, you know, what you get out of that relationship, what benefit is there to it. And certainly when we have Liberian leadership involved in the upcoming U.S. Democracy Summit, I'm presuming Liberia will be involved because it would be rather shocking if they weren't. But assuming they would be, it's, a, it's another opportunity to have some really focused bilats around these issues and also to hold up the recognition that there is what should be a privileged relationship.
2: Yeah, I think I just quickly I'll add to that to say that you know there there are already pieces on the ground for this to happen because at the end of the Ebola outbreak, the U.S. helped build the National Public Health Institute of Liberia that is now doing all of the disease surveillance, and some of that surveillance is actually useful to the sub-region to, to our, our colleagues in in Sierra Leone, in, in Guinea, and in Cote d'Ivoire. So I think it's a really, really good place to begin. But I would also say that, you know, the pattern of U.S. engagement across the continent has actually, you know, waxed and waned based on what America's larger foreign policy interests were. And so at, at the end of the Cold War, there's a significant withdrawal of U.S. engagement everywhere across the continent. And so for most of the this generation of leaders, you, if you're looking at history at all, you're going to be looking at that. Now there is another actor on the continent, right? The Chinese. The only embassy that is maybe in the same size as the U.S. embassy in Liberia now is the Chinese embassy. But then the Chinese also have a commercial consulate that is almost as big as that. And so they've built us a a referral hospital in the middle of the country with the country's first MRI and CT scan. They've built us a massive campus for our public university. So there is a significant push from the Chinese side. If it weren't for the long history that's already existed between the United States and Liberia. China probably would have eclipsed the U.S. My hope is the U.S. is going to the Biden administration is going to be like, you know what, we're going to show to the Africans what it means to be in partnership with the U.S. and we're going to use Liberia as an example. It's a small country, it's smaller than the population of Lagos in Nigeria, smaller than the population of Accra. We're going to take Liberia and we're going to make Liberia an example and we're going to start with health.
0: Judy, I know you said that that was your big idea, but like you should give our listeners... The shortest elevator brief on innovation when it comes to African roads. You talked about it on our Into Africa episode. It's so important and such a great idea.
2: The infrastructure gap in Africa is somewhere between 68 and 108 billion a year. 40% of that is, is transport. And the cost of paving roads is so high. So the idea here is to do a grand challenge, like a prize challenge. Invite materials and geotechnical engineers from America's best programs to compete on coming up with new material to pave roads that are cheaper than anything that exists now, or just creating chemical polymers that changes the characteristics of soils so that the soils actually perform as if they were paved. And if the U.S. were to lead that, then almost all of the debt, a significant portion of the debt that African countries have taken from China has been for paving roads. That would really, really change the game and the outcomes are crazy. But on on a better note, I got in touch with my friend, the transport secretary, I met him before he became transport secretary, and I emailed him my idea for this, and he's uh, he's got a staff talking to me. So who knows? Maybe the U.S. Transport Department might end up supporting this, and then we might come up with something that actually has significant and outsized uh, um, development outcomes across the continent.
0: That is super exciting. You got to keep us posted on that. Absolutely. One last question: We're going to have to talk about Joliffe Rice. Yes, of course. And here's the thing, right? If you're on the internet, it is Nigeria versus Ghana. I know you're going to make an argument that Liberian Jollof Rice beats all of its regional competitors. So make the argument.
2: Well, so first of all, on these things, I try to take sentiments out of it and be as objective as possible. And this is me being objective. There is no... Comparison really. Uh, we, I mean, here with an, a neutral audience here in Washington D.C., we've consistently had these competitions for Jolof. And Liberia won back-to-back championships. And when we actually did turn it over, because we didn't lose it, it was Sierra Leone, which basically copies what we do. Nigeria and all the noise they make about Jolof, I think it's just a function of numbers. There's just way so many Nigerians, like 200 million of them, and ever, if all of them just keep saying Jolof, Jolof, it sounds as if Nigeria is doing something, but come on, like, you know, and then Ghana, I intentionally, I didn't even want to mention Ghana because I don't know what they're doing in Ghana, but they just like to compare themselves to the Nigerians. So there is this thing. I think, look, nations are falling and, and rising on the, the quality of jollof. And as a Liberian coming out here, I, again, I, there's no sentiment attached to it. This is just objective in terms of the quality of what we produce in Liberia. Well, that's the show. Please
0: subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts and check out our analysis at csis.org backslash Africa. Thanks.